Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. We all know the Republican Party has become the party of Trump, but as Glenn Youngkin's surprise victory in the race for Virginia governor shows, growing extremism seems to be no obstacle to victory, even in a blue state. My guest today is here to help make sense of what's happened to the GOP and what may yet happen to the Democrats. He's a political scientist who has consulted on polling and strategy for five Democratic presidential campaigns, as well as broadcasters, polling companies and political parties outside the US. He's currently Research Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego. And his latest book is Crack Up, The Republican Implosion and the Future of Presidential Politics. Samuel L. Popkin, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be here. So you describe political parties as a necessary virtue rather than a necessary evil, as uh, some believe them to be. I mean, wh- why do you think that they're, they're underrated? Well, because we've spent so much time talking about the personality of the leader. And the minute the leader gets into office, whether it's the nice guy who seems just like everybody wants, Joe Biden, or the person who seems like the exception to the rule, once they get in power, all they can do is sign things that their party passes in the Congress or the Senate, and they take on the flavor and the color of the entire party. But it's so much easier to think about individuals and embodiment. You know, in every country, the Communist Party tried to be a faceless monolith, the party. And it always ended up with a Lenin, a Stalin, a Pol Pot, a Mao, who took over because the, the brand plus the personality was a bigger container that, that pulled in more people. And I suppose people do worry a lot now about partisanship and that, that idea of, of polarization. What's the difference between sort of parties and what parties are ideally and partisanship? Today, the problem is people focus so much on the, the, the civil war, the great divide between the parties. The great divide between the parties is caused by the inability of party leaders to bring the extremes on the two sides of the party together. It's the failure of the power of party leaders, the resources they have. And it's partly this world will never change now because you don't need the party leader to give you media access and you don't need the party leader to provide you money in America. The changes in campaign finance that were intended to, quote, purify the party, strip the party leaders of power and put all the power in the hands of outside billionaires with their pet interests. Well, yes, because you start with the the unintended consequences of the bipartisan McCain-Feingold campaign finance reforms 20 years ago. And I think at the time when I was hearing about them, I thought, oh, this seems good. This seems to be sort of, you know, cleaning up the role of money in politics. And of course, that was not how it turned out. What went wrong? And do you think that it should have been foreseen? The idea, the idea that went wrong was the idea that you can banish wealth. 
that you can somehow remove wealth from politics in a world where the First Amendment allows people to speak. Because what we really did was say, if you keep all your money and spend it on your own and don't give it to the party leaders, we'll have better parties. What happened is when, as the party leaders have all said since, and I quote, you had a homogenizing effect when the party leader would take money from a company and everybody would know they gave it. It was not like it was a secret. And you'd decide how much can we do for the steel industry or how much can we do for real estate? And that would limit the party. But now the instead you can take your money and totally finance quotes independently um, a candidate and have candidates totally responsive to an outsider with their money. It didn't move the money out of politics. It moved the money into freewheeling outside the parties. And it also totally devastated for a while many of the state parties where the money that used to go to them from the national party was gone. And did that start happening straight away? Or did you did it did it take until you know, for example, the Tea Party movement, to really see the consequences of this? It was starting before Tea Party when John McCain was going to be the candidate in 2008. It was made clear to him by some of the billionaires spending the money on their own, you know, the quotes, independent groups. You don't get any money until you change your position on global warming. And in 2012, one of the Koch brothers, uh, it was clear to Mitt Romney that if he didn't pick a very conservative vice presidential candidate, Paul Ryan, then he would get no funding. The hundreds of millions they were ready to spend to defeat Obama wouldn't be spent. So the outsiders have enormous power that they didn't have before when they gave the money to the party leaders who decided just what they would do and how far they would go. Now there were no no constraints. And people thought at the time that this was going to strengthen when when the money started flowing outside, they said, this is really going to strengthen the role of the, you know, the big companies, the Fortune 500. And it didn't. Big companies with public sales don't like to be so controversial on on issues. The people who really benefited were the venture capitalists who have don't even care what I think, or people like the Coke industries. How do you boycott a pipeline? How do you know when you buy gas if it went through their pipeline or somebody else's? So it's people who aren't worried about what we think of them who benefited. Ted Cruz is uh, is a major character in the book. What, yes. what is it that you think that he represents? Why is he, I suppose, the, 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 the worst example of that, you know, the crowning example of the problem you're talking about? I'm willing to go as far as saying if Ted Cruz had acted differently, we might never have seen a Donald Trump. The Tea Party in 2010 was a crazy rebellion of all sorts of characters who sounded good because they hated a very discredited party establishment. They lost Senate races in 2010 and and 2012 because of 
candidates that were beyond the pale, even in today's notion of how many things people will believe. They couldn't win statewide races with things that only sold well in small towns. And just as it was calming down, Ted Cruz was, as several of the big Republicans said, an 11 on a 10-point Richter scale because he took on the richest, most powerful Texas establishment in the country, in Texas, and beat their candidate and became U.S. senator. And Cruz had also been the clerk to the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. And he could either be the eloquent um, case winner, great hero to the gun owners and the people who believe you should have a gun everywhere. And also, he could be a nasty, arrogant person and make trouble. And he chose in the Senate to divide the Senate, to divide the Republicans, to make himself look like an outsider. He would call for votes on things that threatened the future of many senators, not because they could win with that vote or they could do anything legislatively, but to embarrass people by forcing them to either vote for something absurd or look like they weren't as strong and extreme as Cruz. And so he divided and conquered within his own party, using the Senate to look like the bravest and boldest of all. There's a famous post-mortem report after Obama beat Romney in the 2012 election, which called for a more positive and inclusive party uh, led by someone like Rubio, which would, of course, involve immigration reform. And then pretty much the opposite happened. So do you think that it was sort of, I suppose, Cruz's wrecking tactics that killed that version of the GOP? Or was the desire outside of the people who put together that report just not there, that most most Republicans didn't really want to change? Most Republicans so distrusted them, the, the establishment, that it was extremely hard to defend what they were doing. But there was a path. The actual legislation gave a way for people to become citizens, which took more than 12 years. This was a a slow path. This is for 11 million people who have been in the country a long time, and the people called the dreamers, children who had never lived anywhere else after they were little babies, came here as babies and grew up and went to college here. And the legislation was designed to reassure people, but it needed people to say, yes, it'll work. And there were two concerns um, among the base of the Republican Party. One is, you've lied to us about protecting Social Security and Medicare, and now you're going to give our our hard-won, well-deserved entitlements to these undeserving people who just washed up on the shore. To be put it in the crude way, it would be expressed in an interview group. Cruz made it impossible to make a deal by insisting and making it a big part of his thing that amnesty for anybody meant defending illegal entry to the U.S. and insisting that there was a way to solve the problem that did not require citizenship or amnesty, which is the big lie.
when the Democrats lost in the 1980s, the party had this major rethink, which led to Bill Clinton and the New Democrats, sort of similar to what we saw in the UK with with New Labour as a response to a series of defeats. Why do Republicans no longer treat a defeat as a wake-up call? There never seems to be a rethink. I don't think it's fair to say there's never a rethink. I think both parties have had periods. You very properly point out what the situation of the party and the pieces not fitting together between the House and with their small concentrated districts and the Senate with the bigger statewide concerns and the White House and their national concerns. There's always been periods when you could win the House or the Senate, but not the presidency. And in the past, in both parties, some group of current office holders would work together to nudge the party into a more acceptable program. Now, no group in the Republican Party has the power to overcome the powerful outside groups. When Donald Trump, for example, tried to get an almost total repeal of Obamacare passed the extreme right of the House, the Freedom Group called themselves the Freedom Caucus, said this isn't strong enough and we won't support it. And Trump said, if you don't support it, I'm going to go after you in your primaries to be the candidate again, at which point Americans for Progress, the group of billionaires organized by Charles and David Cope, immediately said, we'll defend all of you and we'll put together a war chest to protect you in your primaries, which solved the problem. So you've got these powerful outside groups that overwhelm any coalition. And Donald Trump did something for the party that they're afraid to get rid of, which is the party and and both parties thought that Obama won in 2012 because there were no more white votes to be had. That was a bad exit poll. The truth was 2 million Republican voters stopped voting after 2004 when the second George W. Bush term went so bad. The vote that lost for Senator John Kerry as the Democratic candidate in 2004, that state-by-state vote was big enough to win the next two national presidential elections. Only when Trump came in and brought back the truly alienated few million other white voters who had stopped when the party no longer spoke to them. Without, he was the piece that went over the top. He filled the gas tank. He got them the last inches over the, the, the top. And that gave him a power. People were afraid to give up despite the dark side, all the things he did that nobody likes. Um, When there was a vote on certifying the election and so many congressmen had to say they would not vote to acknowledge Biden as a legitimate winner the night of the insurrection, one of them, as he was going to cast his vote, was heard by reporters to say, the things we have to do for that orange Jesus. There's a resentment, but they're afraid of him because without his little crazy voters, they don't think they can get the 50 percent. Let's turn to the Democrats briefly. I mean, they're currently led by moderate Joe Biden. Progressives like AOC get a lot of coverage, but they're they're a numerical 
you know, minority in Congress, and there's no far left equivalent of the Koch brothers. So is there any prospect of a similar crack up happening to the Democrats? Yes, it almost happened. At the last minute, the Progressive Caucus, which is the biggest caucus in the party, realized that if they didn't compromise, all was lost. The loss of the governor's race in Virginia, which is not a very good augur of anything for reasons I won't get into with you, but if they didn't do something to compromise and get some of the Biden package passed, then the party would be devastated. And you heard people like AOC saying things like, well, it would be immoral to vote for this because it actually would increase pollution without the other spending, which is actually not good economics or science, but it, it, trying to show that she was trying to compromise her group, be happy, be good for the poor and for the Greens, which is not as easy as it sounds. If somebody came along, a group said, we will vote for nothing that Greta Thunberg doesn't approve, or we will vote for nothing that doesn't end all coal now. You can block the party as completely as the Republicans got blocked at nibbling away at the Obama pieces in the past. It, it can happen just as easily because it's a new environment. The party leaders don't control your access to media. The party leaders have no money. People used to go first to the party and say, I'm thinking running for Congress. What do you think? And they'd say, well, you have a chance in that district, or maybe you ought to do something different and run for a different office. That doesn't happen now. If you want to run as a Republican, the first thing you do is you go to groups like Americans for Prosperity or the Club for Growth. There isn't that right now. The Democratic billionaires, with the exception of Tom Steyer, who tried to give all his money for Greens, have been people worried more about turnout and letting the party do their business. That could change. If somebody came along, and I won't name names, I've seen some flaky billionaires in the past, in the 70s, if somebody came along and said, if marijuana or ending all coal or stopping all automobiles is not on the agenda, I'm not giving you money. And it's not easy. It's not hard to win over 20 or 30 people and stop everything. Well, I do want to ask you about Virginia, because I mean, I think what always happens when you have a result like that is that there's a kind of flurry of perhaps overinterpretation. And you in this book, you know, you take the long view I suppose what someone might think looking at that is why, even though the Republicans have lost the White House and both houses of Congress, they can still pull off these victories despite their sort of radicalization. And wonder they might wonder why. So is, is Youngkin an example of Trumpification in your eyes? You know, and he would wins just by firing up the the base, the Orange Jesus base. Or did he win with a with a different message? Yes. Youngkin I thought the person most likely, I thought that the most dangerous Republican was going to be Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who some of the time sounds like Donald Trump, but much of the time also speaks to a broader middle class and is a very educated person who made it up from 
the grassroots with hard work and scholarships. Youngkin is both the, the person who worked his way up from the bottom bit by bit, and also a very polished, sophisticated, relaxed, national campaigner. And he is one of the leaders of the Carlisle Group, one of the most powerful groups you don't hear much about involving people like uh, both President George H.W. Bush and James Baker and all sorts of people like that. He was very much more regular person. He complained about some of the issues about teaching critical race theory as, as his red meat. He never was nasty. He never was unfolksy. And he had he spent his own money. Youngkin will not scare people in boardrooms the way Trump does or in the big law firms. Youngkin knows his way around and he knows how to do just enough for the voters. I mean, he's he may be the next Richard Nixon, the person who comes back from a, a, a bad crack up. He or DeSantis could be the next person. And the thing that takes seriously for Democrats is not the world has ended because he won, but look at what he had to do. All he had to do was moderate his talk on immigration and criticize the most obviously controversial parts of the Democrats, the defunding police or talking only about Black Lives Matter. And that the talking about Black Lives Matter, by the way, loses a lot of Hispanic votes, too, because it's as if they're the only outsiders. And you make a strong argument for the benefits of having two sort of broad coalitions and, you know, functional parties. But um, as I was reading this book, I was also listening to Andrew Yang saying that that what America really needs uh, is a strong third party and that this will kind of resolve this this sort of bitter divide. Whether that's possible is one question, but do you think that that is desirable? Would it be a healthier system if you had more than two meaningful parties? The number of parties is not going to matter much. The notion that there's a third way, nobody's put together a party that actually stands for all the pieces because most people only want moderation on the issues they don't care much about. I'm willing to moderate on a lot of issues about where you can fish and hunt, but I'm not willing to moderate on a woman's right to choose. And when the few people do their surveys, there's always the examples of, well, moderate on the issues I don't put <laughs> in first place, but don't moderate on the one I care most about. There's more money into the care most about now with the way the system is changed. And the Yang thing is as if, you could start a third party by running for president. You only can start a third party that matters the way in England you become one of the top two parties in a number of districts. And you could have a party, a green party or an anti-immigration party that would be 20 or 30 members of Congress. But when you get into Congress, you still have to vote for which group of people are going to make the rules and dominate the session. Every legislature has to have somebody who makes the rules. And that takes 50% of the people to vote for it, or 50% plus one. And finally, 
you do end the book with a chapter called What Can Be Done. And there's, there are these sort of suggestions regarding financing, regarding sort of setting a higher bar, you know, for entry into primaries, talking about stronger legislative leadership. But you're also a kind of pragmatic thinker. And I wonder which of these things, desirable though they are, seem like they might be achievable, that the, the desire is there. If the Democrats had a workable, larger majority in Congress and three or four more senators, meaning if the Democrats had enough appeal in rural areas to be a stronger party, then you could make it harder to have money that we don't know where it came from spent in elections. Every time the Democrats have a bill to reform government, it includes putting more money into the Internal Revenue Service because so many people are evading taxes. And every time they've needed Republican votes to get the bill through the Senate, the part that the Republicans insisted be dropped was the part about making it harder to avoid taxes by the wealthy. And I think that's one of the critical pieces we can do. We can't take the money out of politics without changing now the Supreme Court. And that's a long job. But you can make it harder to pass money from one person to another. And then somebody, a third person spends money in a slimy or a nasty way in an ad. And you don't know where it came from for a year. That can be fixed. But that's very hard to do without much more power in the government. It's, it's not sexy, but it matters a lot. Thank you so much for joining me, Samuel Popkin. I was a pleasure. I'm, I'm, I hope this helps. And thank you very much. Crack Up is published by Oxford University Press. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>